you know, the force uh, of the accident through my spine basically and crushed one of my vertebrae at 40% of its original height. I uh, did some other injuries, so fractured left scapula, which is your shoulder, fractured three ribs on my left side, fractured my left wrist, uh, tore up a thumb tendon, um, basically had no cuts on my body, a few cuts on two of my fingers or three of my fingers. Um, but yeah, just put all this force down through my spine and that, um, uh, yeah, um, really messed life up for a while. Imagine going out for your usual bike ride with your mates and then the next thing you know you're flying through the air, crunching into the earth and gasping for breath, suffering an agonising wait for the ambulance and then to be told at the hospital you've suffered a spinal cord injury. To help others, today's guest wrote a book, A Fraction Stronger, about this experience and he's here to have a chat with us today. Episode 80, Mark Berridge. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Well, welcome to welcome to the podcast, Mark. Oh, well, uh, yeah, absolutely great to be on. Thank you so much for having me on the show. That's okay. I I heard your story and I thought, oh God, this is going to be an interesting conversation because I found, and probably prelude, people would have listened to the to the intro that I'll do separately of of your story summary in about ten seconds summary, but. You, at the start, you said, hang on a minute, you went and got a back brace, which is a huge clue if you guys skipped over the intro. Mark broke his back riding a um, riding a bicycle. Yeah, I did, bike. <laughs> I, I, I did a first-class job of it, unfortunately. So uh, now I have this knitting back brace thing that I put on a chair my physio gave me, and it makes a bit of a difference to yeah. you know, if I'm sitting for a long period of time. So how did it happen? You're obviously very active you sent me three photos and you're very active in sport you were very high up obviously in the corporate world um and then there were photos of you lying on that your mates had taken of you lying on the ground on the on the accident when you were a mammal going around middle-aged man in lycra um cycling around with them laughing at you with a broken back on the ground they didn't know though yeah well obviously encouraging me just to toughen up and get up um i, I guess that's just the scenario like uh, there I am lying in the ditch. The pain was just off the scale, but uh, like you just don't realize it's that that serious. It's you know, I had I remember saying to the one. Well, I don't remember saying, but apparently I did say to one of the guys I had pins and needles in my legs, um, but I didn't know if that was just because you know I hadn't moved for a while in in the ditch, and because I don't know, and I don't know if that's because I couldn't move or I just didn't want to move. How much of it was self preservation, but. None of us expected it to be as serious as it was. And, you know, three years, three hours later in hospital, when you hear the uh, devastating news, you got a spinal cord injury. I mean, that was a complete shock. I had no, I guess I had, I had an expectation it was serious, but I had no expectation it could be that serious. Um, let's rewind. Tell me how the accident actually happened. Yeah, so I, I was cycling a fair bit, 200, 250 Ks per week, just trying to stay fit, good headspace. And normal normal crew that I cycled with Sunday morning ride halfway through a 70k ride, come around a corner, uh, probably about 30k an hour around the corner, and uh, front wheel just sort of hits this divot in the road, so a bit of soft repair work amongst a, amongst the road, different surface, and the front wheel just suddenly uh, lost traction. So next thing you know, I'm sort of straight lining the corner or understeering through the corner, and I had to make a decision of what's the least impactful way to crash? I knew at that point in time, uh, my chances of getting around the corner safely were low. Um, well, I, I assessed them as nil because I decided that was going to be a crash uh, and that my best option was to crash straight ahead to the park that I could see in front of me, basically. Um, but what I didn't know was there was a stormwater drain in the park. And I guess that was all related to the bits of the curve I could see and the decisions I was making that there was actually this big stormwater drain and that was probably 1.7, 1.8 metres below ground level. And I've clipped the edge of that on the way down and there's sort of this bluestone rocks that forms up the, the the stormwater drain around the road and my helmet's clipped my helmet and shoulders clipped the side of that low in the in the drain and I've just sort of fallen my side in the drain and I, I would have had no idea I was in a stormwater drain I sort of only as the guys started turning up in hospital 
over the coming days and they kept saying, oh, you're a bit unlucky, you're just in this drain, et cetera. And I'm going, oh, I had no idea I was in a drain. So, yeah, you know, just this pole driving into this drain that I couldn't see and um, and that forced all that, uh, you know, the force uh, of the accident through my spine basically and crushed one of my vertebrae at 40% of its original height. I uh, did some other injuries, so fractured left scapula, which is your shoulder, Fractured three ribs on my left side, fractured my left wrist, uh, tore up a thumb tendon, um, basically had no cuts on my body, a few cuts on two of my fingers or three of my fingers. Um, but, yeah, just put all this force down through my spine and that, um, uh, yeah, um, really messed life up for a while. So you, uh, it wasn't like your first time out cycling. You were a regular cyclist and, and a fit individual. So it was not like you were just out for a Sunday ride willy-nilly and and unstable on the bike yeah and that's part of the uh, mental challenge for a while after the accident because you know like I was proud of my cycling ability and, and just got this you know how did that happen how did I not manage to get around a corner or how did the bike suddenly lose its traction and, and it felt so strange with the handlebars so yeah that that probably took me uh, at least six weeks to fully let go of I suppose in terms of the you know, how did it happen? You know, um, And yeah, definitely. I felt very, very comfortable and competent on the bike. So it was a great surprise, I guess, at those first couple of, couple of instants when you're thinking, oh my God, how's the bike done this? Why am I, why have I lost traction in the, in the corner? Um, you know, how am I going to control this? How long were you in the ditch for? Because there was a delay in the ambulance getting to you, weren't there? wasn't there? Yeah, I, I don't really know. I know they called the ambulance about 6.17 and I think, uh, at one point, uh, when I was talking to the hospital, I think I presented about about quarter past seven. So uh, I think it was probably, um, you know, maybe fifteen minutes for the ambulance to get to me. That's what it certainly felt a long time, and and I know that just hanging on for that was really really tough. I had to have some strategies to help me get through that, and then it took him a while to work out how to get me out of the ditch, and then. Um, you know, obviously 15 minutes or something to get across to the hospital. So because I was laying across the ditch, they couldn't get the sort of uh, combi carrier stretcher underneath me safely, uh, which obviously they needed to, to protect my back from further injury. So that took them quite a while to problem solve to get me out. What was it about the fall or... So there was obviously something that you knew that was different of why your friends didn't move you from the ditch and why you didn't try. I mean, you mentioned that your legs were pins and needles, but what was it about the impact or the fall or what you were feeling that you went, don't don't move me, this is not right? Well, I had two physios and a nurse with me, so that probably helped. They, I don't think that yeah. were, there was no, I don't think there was any ever, any discussion around moving me. Certainly I had no I guess what I mean is I had, I can't recall ever having a desire to try and to get up or before they got to me, because I was, I was riding with eight other cyclists, you know, it was obviously some seconds after the injury till they got to me. Um, and I never lost consciousness that, that we're aware of. I certainly don't recall having lost consciousness. Um, and I don't ever remember even trying, you know, having a desire to get up. So I think it's that, it's the, um, how, intelligent our bodies are right so the moment that's happened to my spine all the muscles around my spine are contracting and they're just protecting it they know what to do and that was actually one of the factors that was really impacting my breathing so you know one of the first things I can remember is the intensity the pain and just not being able to breathe and that's because both I had the three fractured ribs on my left and for a long time I guess I just associated that as being part of the problem but later on in hospital I learned that um, it was just because the muscles around the injury site just all contracted to protect it. And that further, because if you, if you put your hand on your rib cage and just slide it around to your back, that's basically the, the um, vertebrae that I smashed to 40% of its height. And so, you know, all of that area that's at the bottom end of your lungs, the expansive part of your lungs was all constrained and couldn't help, you know, basically couldn't allow me to breathe to any depth. So, in a way that helped because my first thing to concentrate on was, was just how do I slow down my breathing? How do I get it a bit deeper? How do I not let this inability to, to breathe at this point in time exacerbate the situation and, and get me into panic? How do I just effectively slow things down? 
which is a funny really when you think through it because that's the last thing I wanted of the ambulance. I wanted that there quick. So but that's funny. You just have to sort of find a way to cope and get through that first moment to to get to the next moment. How was uh, you mentioned obviously they told you in hospital that it was a spinal cord injury. What was that moment like? How did they how did they inform you of that? Was it very nonchalant, Mark, you've got a spinal cord injury, or was it sort of a a full like they took that and the enormity of the moment sort of hit you. Oh, I think I think it's um, you know, they they were everything I remember in hospital was you know fantastic experience really. I mean, I can't because I was prone on the on the plinth on the 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 bed um in emergency. I can't recall being able to see anyone as they spoke. Um, and I, I guess it was funny because I always, when I first started trying to write and talk about it, and I'm talking to my wife, Lucy, who normally doesn't miss anything at all. She couldn't really remember anything about the briefing. I'm trying to work out why. And she it just established that she was just in complete shock. You know, two years later, she told me she was in such shock. She's had to push herself into the, into the wall and around the corner to find the only chair she could see rather than collapse at that point in time. So I guess it, you're in a fair bit of shock. So it's hard to take everything in. But my general feeling was that they were really, um, you know, I guess it was really pretty balanced and even. It obviously didn't paint a particularly rosy picture. I had this view of, you know, being impacted, um, you know, from a very limited mobility going forward. Um, and I really only sort of recall, well, I, I recall basically that, you know, one of my vertebrae was 40% of its original height that I had this more than 50% compression in your spinal cord. And that was the one that sort of really shook me the most. Cause I'm thinking, what the hell does that mean? How does that, how are my legs going to work if they're at best 50% of what they were before, which is sort of the natural extension I was taking for that comment. Cause I didn't really know how to understand it. And when it, when I did try and press for information there, you know, they weren't really able to give any, all they could say was, look, you know, we've got no choice, but to put, this stabilization into your spine, which is two sets of 23 centimeter long rods. And if we can get that operation um, through today, so within a 24 hour period of the um, the injury, then we our chances of decompressing the spine are reasonable and therefore the chances of the spinal cord injury being at the more minimal end is, um, you know, there is some chance of that and that's what we're aiming for. Uh, so, I don't ever remember even feeling like the operation was a choice. It just felt like, yeah, okay, I hate the idea of anyone operating on my spine, but it feels like I've got absolutely no choice. That's where we'll go first. Um, so it just felt, I, I guess I, overall, I just felt like I was almost without choice and I trusted them and I almost had no choice at that point in time, but just to trust them in order to get going forward and, when did they tell you that you wouldn't walk again? I don't know that they, I can't ever recall them saying that. I had, what I recall is them painting a picture of very limited mobility. So that I, I sort of, I remember from that briefing sort of having this vision of someone that would perhaps be in, um, wheelchair for most of the time with some ability to like use crutches or something for short duration walking that was sort of the vision i had and i just remember right. think i just remember thinking i'm going to be a burden on my family but i might be able to find a way to retain some independence to be able to get around how do i and and i think that was really critical to me on that first day was sort of identifying a way to make what i'd heard palatable how do I find a way to be able to get around in my, I guess, my terms? Because coming back to your previous comment, yeah, I associate myself with being active and and fit and yeah. Was that at the was that your limited? You'll have limited mobility. Was that at the initial? Oh, by the way, this is your injury, or was was that a subsequent conversation? I can't recall any sort of mobility based discussions with the surgeons after that first day. So I only remember them of the, yeah. the first day. And the only other really relevant one with this was with the person that actually briefed me that day, uh, well, I found out who it was like uh, about six months, nine months after in one of my check-ins. And he said, I'm the guy that had to give you that terrible news on the first day that really 
um, I actually forget the, the phrase, but he basically, you know, the way he said it, I remember the way he said it in nine months after the injury thinking, oh, I didn't actually feel you were that negative. <laughs> I, I, you know, I remember being panicked by this more than 50% um, compression of spinal cord, but yeah, it was almost like, hmm, was it really that bad? Did I somehow find a way to just find some better news in this? Anyway, so you, I guess you just don't know. Come back to that comment about Lucy before and the shock. You know, it is, it's pretty hard to digest. Um, so you get a bit of mobility information from your your physios then, I think, once you start getting up and moving and what that what life might be like. But yeah, not so much from the surgeons. Tell me what life was like prior to the injury because you were not only very active in terms of your personal life, but you were very senior in terms of some very large organizations. I'll leave it to you whether or not you want to name them. Um, but global organizations and you were well up there. So what was sort of, I suppose, life like beforehand and then life, the reality of life afterwards? It's a great question because they're so um, interrelated in, in some ways, right? You sort of, pursued your whole life trying to you know have a rewarding in my case rewarding career with the idea of you know doing well financially to set up your family you got a family you love and you really want to be able to enjoy all of all of that and so suddenly yeah you just sort of got feel like all that that's taken away from you all these things you've been working for and so in the same time you're thinking how do I get back to some of that you know and um, I think that's the really confronting thing is this um, you know, I've worked hard, I've got to a good career, I've set up a great life myself, and suddenly all these dreams I had of, you know, enjoying my children's weddings and life ahead and, you know, holding my grandparents, uh, my grandchildren in the air and travelling the world in retirement are suddenly, hang on, I can't do all these things together. So I guess I, in a lot of ways I find them really interrelated concepts in terms of this, everything you've worked for, and then... And, and how that's suddenly been jeopardized in an instant. And so you use it as I, I call the members, you know, that sense of yourself, that sense of what you were, we're trying to achieve to help you be motivated, inspired to work back to what seems to have been taken away from you. So I used it as motivation, but also all those things you've been through, the tough things in work, the experiences you've had, the support that you know that you've learned how to embrace in the way you've learned how to, to nurture and foster and get the best out of all that support and the ability to reach out for it really helps. I would say that probably the more senior you get in an organisation, often it's yet a bit more proud or a bit more unlikely to reach out. And I, and I definitely had to um, step out of my comfort zone consistently and going, no, just ask for help or you know, get into the whole network. Whoever might be able to help you, don't be proud. Um, you ask for help. And I remember probably about a week after the accident that I had a real watershed moment around that where one of the go the cycling guys had come into the hospital and talked to me. And that, um, and at the end of that, he made me realise I potentially had some help through Bicycle Queensland. So uh, I remember how emotional it was for me to type the email to Bicycle Queensland because in a way it was, this is day eight and it was, it was like the first time I'm outside of anyone that I know having to reveal what has just happened to me eight days earlier and how everything I feel about my life shattered. And I'm just without any pride seeking out any help I can from any angle, you know? And mm -hmm. then the response that came back from the then CEO, Anne Savage, how beautiful it was. And I just cried, you know, and reading this email thinking, how can someone write such a kind email back? This is just amazing. And I was never expecting the CEO of the organization to be replying and expecting just, um, you know, someone somewhere shallower in the organisation to be replying and, and just that kindness of people. And again, I guess that's, a, you know, been a central phenomenon of my recovery is all that kindness that seemed to find me. When you're saying that you're reaching out for help, what sort of help were you after? Um, counts like counselling help or rehab help? Or what was it that you were sort of after in terms of assistance? I think in... Um, well, that particular instance, in some ways, that was um, I had some potential medical insurance help through Bicycle Queensland. So that was probably more, you know, partially financial because, of course, you're wondering, am I going to work again? Am I going to, you know, how I'm going to earn money again? 
Um, what are my medical bills going to be like? And at that point, all you're thinking is, I don't care what it costs. I just want to find a way to get better. You're like, okay, what's happened to me? Um, so that one there, I think physio, you're definitely, you know, getting a lot of help. And in, in the hospital, they offer you, um, you know, I guess, psycho uh, psychological help if you need it. And, you know, a number of times I felt like, you know, I'm so low here, I need to call the counsellor's number and get her up here. But I think more than anything, I just tried to use those as my mental uh, motivation. If I can find a way to just break out of this moment, then I don't have to invest an hour, hour and a half in that discussing because you want to do a full review first to really understand me. And that's going to take energy and time. And at this stage, I don't have energy and time and I'm desperate to try and get as better as possible in the longer term, which means I need to be making gains now and I need all my energy to be on a um, on a physical level. So mentally, I was sort of processing that way and just thinking, how can I turn it around? And I guess in a way, I was fortunate I'd been through with all of the jobs I'd been and, um, you know, I guess, high pressure jobs at different stages, a bit of an anxiety journey in the mid 2000s. So I sort of had some basic understandings of how I might um, turn around myself. But at the same time, it was really valuable to know that if it, I just couldn't, then I had that ability mm. to reach out. So, but that was probably one where I don't know if it was pride that stopped me. I think it was more just efficiency. How do I, um, you know, how do I go, uh, how do I use my energy for physical recovery? Therefore, I need to find a way mentally to just get a bit more positive. Just do what you can do, focus on what you can do, breathe, just wiggle your toes, you know, sit on the side of the bed, no matter how painful it is, just do that because it's moving you in the right direction and concentrate on what you can do, not lament what you can't or, or how you're feeling about it. I, it was a, probably a big strategy for me in that first, you know, well, all of the time in hospital, the first six weeks, but particularly the first 10 days. So you really broke it down to very small tasks. Today I'm going to sit on the side of the bed, which sounds small, but it's probably enormous. We've got a broken back. Yeah, again, like on the first day, I remember just being so lost and um, shaken by the news, and it took me a number of hours to get around to get over that. And then um, I sort of picked up this idea of, no, I'm going to give this my absolute best shot. I'm going to throw everything at it. I'm going to mimic this attitude other people might have taken <laughs> to difficult situations. And then you get through the operation and I come out the other side of the operation. I can realize I can't even push myself a centimeter of the edge. So of uh, the bed. So all this idea yesterday of, you know, I'm going to be able to give this a go. I'm really determined. It just dissipates. Right. So yeah, at that point in time, I think it became really obvious to me. You just got to break it down into the smaller steps. What can I do now? You know, wriggle myself an inch up the bed so I can sit the bed up a little bit. Cause if we can sit the bed up a little bit, then my lungs are less likely to get any post operate. Um, operation pneumonia or other setbacks um, and so yeah very much that strategy um, not only as a foundation for improvement but just to to know that I'm doing something to move forward so to mm -hmm. almost break almost break the feeling of uh, inadequacy because you do have a strong feeling of inadequacy or I had a sorry I don't I can't talk for everyone I can imagine most people might I certainly did have a strong feeling of inadequacy when you're laying there in bed basically unable to do anything you know um, and so just what can, what little things can I do that are moving me in the right direction so it's sort of this connection between big aspirations of where you really want to get to but they're just so distant at this stage what's the tiny little things that just keep me moving forward because I know this big aspiration I've got way off in the future. Um, if I just keep moving forward and don't have setbacks, then I'm going the right way of that aspiration. How old were your kids at this stage? Uh, the oldest boy was um, 18 and in his final year of school. Uh, so he was... Oh, he's, sorry, he turned 18 at the end of that year. So he was 17 in his final year of school, so year 12. So that was really disruptive for him. And I know he, you know, um, he's not a, not, he's very sensitive and not someone that likes to stand out. So I think the whole idea of both him being made a bit of attention because his dad suddenly impacted was a bit uncomfortable and being, you know, taken care of, but, but also, you know, just found it, I think, really uncomfortable in total to come see me in, in hospital. And it's a very you know, difficult situation. My daughter... Uh, 18 months younger so 16 at the time um, was 
also uncomfortable about coming and she's still uncomfortable i've written a book about my journey and she's so uncomfortable she won't even read the book i don't think she, she says really? she'll never she'll never read the book um so it's so traumatic oh. for her still um and my youngest uh probably was the most regular at coming to see me in hospital but you know he was really shaken and um if we can just extend on it's a little bit beyond feelings but it was really interesting um for me when uh i guess um, 21 months after my injury, we're, I'm debriefing with a friend about the the accident, and he was a school teacher. He obviously decided to be more interesting to hear from Charlie, who was you know then 13, um, about it than me. And Charlie just goes, "Well, um, you know, when he's asked what do you remember about those uh, that first week, he goes, "Well, you know, Dad, you look so depressed. You were confused about how the accident was happening, what had happened." And you were constantly apologizing for letting us down. And it's really interesting because, yes, I had all those feelings, but I have to say I felt like I was trying to use all my energy positively and moving forward. And then suddenly, obviously, he gives me this, um, you know, 21 months later, I get this realization of how I actually looked when they saw me. Um, so that was quite interesting. Well, it was, it, I was in shock, actually. I was really, overall, I was really, really um, moved by what he said to my friend Kerry that day, but it took me probably took me a good minute or two just to get over what I'd heard as that, as those opening 21 words of what he said um, about his memory. So yeah, that definitely had a massive impact on them all being, you know, I guess teenagers and near thereabouts. How did that affect you? Did the kids say to you when you were in the hospital, I can't come and visit you because of like, it's too hard or did they just not come and you're wondering why aren't they coming and seeing me? Well, Luke, Luke was year 12, so he would use the, um, I guess, the prioritisation of study as being, you know, his mm. um, yeah, excuse is the wrong word, but, you know, just, um, I guess, his shield um, for why mm. uh, not to come. So, I, you know, I I think everyone, you know, I, 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 um, I guess I understood the situation. I don't think I needed to, um, you know, I was feeling pretty uncomfortable in, in in hospital as well and didn't want to be there and wanted to be home I think in some ways it was even harder when you know I started to get a few hours um out of hospital and I just really needed to get time out of hospital and come home for you know a few hours at a time on on weekends to to start with but you know I'm so useless and um you know, just can barely get myself up the stairs at home to because we got a two level um sort of house and then, you know, certain parts of the house, well, you know, to move around anywhere outside, I've got to be in the wheelchair and, and that's just hard and you're just feeling like I want to be home, but actually I can see how you guys may not want me home because I'm just so hard work now. I'm really, you know, making life hard. And so come back to one of your earlier questions, you know, that, you know, life was really busy, like three kids, they've all played sport. We just had activities going every which way and I was part of making that happen. And then now I'm suddenly feeling like, you know, I'm just making all that harder rather than being home and being able to help, you know, help and do it, which is where I want to be. And I guess that expectation gap we put on ourselves at times is, you know, can be one of the hardest things mentally of this is where I want to be, but, you know, where I actually am is a long way from it. How did it change the dynamic in terms of your relationship? Because you sound like you were very much, I don't know what your wife wife does or did but it's, I would imagine given the positions that I read on your bio you're probably the breadwinner of the family and and probably that dynamic would have shifted when you were sort of more unable to be so independent uh not so much so um we could go on about the pay gap um so my wife is the more the intelligent and brilliant um, member of our family. She's the better half. She's the better half. <laughs> yeah, totally the better half. And I mean, you know, she's an extremely talented lawyer, leader. Mm. Um, and, lawyer. And, I, and I guess, um, yeah, and yeah, I just admire the way she can do all you know, what she does in terms of leadership space. I wish I had been, I, I like, I, I feel like was a reasonable leader but I look at some of the ways I think she handled situations think geez I wish I was that good and good so you know I guess you know a bit of time out with three children but overall to be honest I think it's just the system she hasn't 
she hadn't progressed as high up the ladder as she should have, in my view. Um, and so, yeah, but we're in the position where we're both, you know, very busy, like full-time workers. So I guess from the, we were juggling two strong careers for a long period of time. So it wasn't so mm -hmm. much I was the, I mean, I, I only earned more because of, because we've got a crap system here in the world. Um, and that eventually that gap will close, the gender pay gap. But yeah, it wasn't it wasn't driven by competency. Um, so yeah, I guess the it changed the it probably you know changed a little bit of the dynamic. I I loved cooking, so I probably did the dominant part of our home cooking, and all of a sudden I can't sort of contribute to that element. But it's probably more just that um, you know overall balance at home, like. I make balance sound like it's something quite amazing, but, you know, we were just finding a way to make all of this busyness in our lives with three kids and two full-time jobs hang together. And suddenly mm -hmm. part, part of the, part of the thing that's making it hang together has fallen, fallen over. So yeah. Be, how be much me. of that was, how much of that, and I'm reading between the lines, but it felt, uh, what I'm hearing is that you felt, like you were more of a burden than an as an assistance during your recovery, given that you were part a vital part of that balancing act of the busy lives. Yeah. How did you mentally cope with that and not spiral? I sp I suppose what's interesting to me is how much you tackled the recovery in terms of the mindset, and I'm wondering how that's so different compared to somebody else that may be also going through a similar journey. So I definitely like, um, you get, I got triggers, I suppose. So things I really hate doing around the home, even, you know, at the very start, I couldn't do like, you know, cleaning the pool filter because getting on and off the ground's hard. So I've got things like that, that I'm probably a bit narky about as an individual. <laughs> it's not, it's not spiral spiraling, but yeah, I could be a better husband and dad and, um, family member at points on things like that that just sort of knock me because you just feel, you know, um, incapable doing and they're just difficult to do and you just wish someone else would do them for you. In terms of the overall, I guess, the spiralling thing, I, I, I'd probably, there would be times where, yeah, I'd feel flat, you know, like, um, yeah, I just, you like, you, you know, particularly the journey goes on and just feels so hard, like the rehab's hard you're not really making much progress. You're sort of starting to give up on ever, you know, getting reasonable, you know, or getting rid of the pain, getting rid of for better mobility. Um, and then you can get down about that. And I guess I would probably always just let myself have a bit of a, yep, that's okay, Mark. You know, it's a nasty situation. You can be a bit down, but then I'd try and find, right, moment I started to feel less bad, maybe a fraction better. I don't know whether it's which one it was. Like, you know, once I sort of felt like it sort of bottomed, what can I do? Right. I just get on the mat and stretch. You know, you can do that. At least it's helping you move in the right direction. And I'd sort of just take some action. So I think in general, my strategy when I was spiraling was how do I find action and do stuff I do like doing? And then once I started to feel, get through that first step, I'd try and find, you know, something else I wanted to you know, that might take my mind off where I was at. So what, can I get out and catch up with someone that's going to make me talk about, you know, my old, not not relive my old jobs, but, you know, elements that were important to me in my old jobs. So understanding, um, you know, world economics or um, I guess, you know, interesting things around the way big corporates might be, corporate trends or something that might be just talk at a different level of stuff, again, that I could still do and take my mind off the, I guess, the physical side of what I, you know, was lamenting. Because mostly my demons, which is the phrase I use to sort of talk about the, I guess, those mental challenges that, you know, could derail you if you let them, you know, mostly around that physical inadequacy, you know, feeling. Yeah. Now we touched on talking about world economies and, and so forth and work and, and whatnot. Obviously, the world does not stop when Mark falls off his push bike. What? <laughs> Put it mildly. Really? <laughs> Never heard that. And you were at a very senior level. What happened with work? Did they uh, hold your job or? Oh, well, I'd actually, um, because 
I guess the most senior job I'd done uh, I'd done was with Rio Tinto, a big mining company um, based up in Singapore, leading all their iron ore price negotiations. So, you know, job that had drove tremendous value for the company and the Australian economy. Um, but once I decided that I didn't want to stay on in that job in Singapore, um, I came back to Brisbane and, and I left Rio Tinto a year after that. So I was just actually starting to set up my own consultancy, my own business, um, which just by having had been 18 months of working back for Rio Tinto or 20 months working back for Rio Tinto on various jobs. Um, and so, yeah, you know, everything's at risk, really. It wasn't like I was in the protection of a, a company position. I mean, I've seen the way Rio generally behaves in situations like that. And if I had been an employee for them, I think they would have been tremendous. So I think they are mm -hmm. you know, a company that would have been. But and they, how long they would have kept my job, I don't know. They couldn't have forever, right? And that eventually would have been mm. clear. I couldn't go back working full time. So, yeah, that would have changed with time. Um, but in my case, yeah, everything was at risk because I was just starting to create my own consultancy. I sort of wanted to wanted to create my own own thing and my own destiny and um, and next thing you know, all of that's at a risk, which come back to that sort of comment about the, you know, the burden to your family. So you're sort of thinking, you know, not only, you know, physical impact, but you're no longer um, providing, you know, my um, my salary to the family's, I guess, overall you know, net worth. How long was the rehab for? Because you're up, spoiler alert, he's up walking now. That's <laughs> true. Uh, yeah, I mean, um I was seven weeks in hospital. Pretty much mm. all of the the first ten months was full time rehab. So all I did was just rehab, uh, well maybe eleven months uh, all the time. Then I started to try and go back um, working two to three days per week, and I was still doing pretty heavy rehab the other days per week. I was going to ask you that if you were doing the consultancy whilst you were doing rehab, so you were able to do that, yeah, bedside so to speak. Okay. Oh no, the um no, I couldn't could, no, I couldn't do anything bedside. So I, uh, the very first bit of work I did was about six months after, um, injury, and that was really nice because it sort of I needed it. It's just like oh, I can add value in some way. Um, mm. you know, I can still do stuff even though it physically exhausted me to do the to, to the little task I did for it, which is about. I don't even know, can't remember what it was, you know, 12 hours worth of consulting over, spread over six days or something and, you know, um, in short bursts, but it, it was just exhausting. But at least I was back doing stuff. Um, then, yeah, January 2020, so that's about, um, yeah, 10 months after the injury, I started to try and work two to three days per week and I just found it was quite exhausting and, and I had to have another operation to have the rods taken back out of my back. And then I was also still trying to push for, you know, uh, pretty intense rehab on the the days I wasn't working, so I probably just pushed it too hard, and then I had a whole lot of complications over the next six months as a result of probably overdoing it by trying to return to work. So again, that's pretty hard because you sort of you've been really looking forward to that, you know, getting back in the workforce, doing something, um, and then you give it a crack and it's not quite working out for you, and you've got to got to change it up again. So. Um, yeah, it was a hard period. So yeah, still do rehab today. So I'll always be, I can't really use my left foot perfectly. You know, can't stand, um, can't stand still on the spot with my eyes closed. I'd fall over. Couldn't walk. Um, can't, can't walk, you know, forward um, really without in, with my eyes closed. I'm very reliant on sight because my feet don't give the feedback around balance properly. Uh, but I can walk about 50% of my previous pace um it, you know, it takes energy because i'm using a lot of core muscles i wouldn't have used before but yeah i'm in a great spot really you know that's very lucky outcome all things considered um so what were the complications that you had because you pushed too hard uh i end up with a whole lot what they call paresthesia down the left side of the neck and oh, all the way down geez, the fingers so it's like this uh like feels like an electrical current basically running down the side of your neck and yeah it's sort of yeah, it's really it was a really awful feeling. So whether I sort of just inflame some nerve around mm. um, the top of my my back where it joins your neck, or what caused that, I'm not quite sure. But it sort of stuck around for about six months. So that was pretty took a while to get over. Um, and it was just yeah, I think you know other you know um, mobility problems around my back. My back just just got a lot sore. And yeah, probably at that point in time, I didn't have a sit to stand desk. I didn't have a um, uh, 
back brace like I've got now. So it just it was I guess it was that sometimes you have a bit of trial and error of what's working, what's not. How do you adjust uh, to be able to go um, go forward? Um, you know, just even you know walking in uh, in work shoes, you know, because you got less. Um, I guess buffer for your feet, less um, suspension in in non sneakers. You know that just tended to cause foot compl complications for me because you know, my feet, as I said, they can't shock absorb like they used to. They just don't um, adjust off the ground, so they you know they get they get issues as well. So yeah, my physio would always joke that you know it's like a shopping list of things you could work on in any given week, and it's what's the worst ones this week, Mark? What's the top three priority of of the you know, I guess, 12 or so things that we could be working on on any given week. What prompted the book, A Fraction Stronger? Uh, uh, feedback, in a way. Um, yeah. So, as I said before, I sort of um, felt really, I guess, defeated at different periods of the recovery process and broken and shattered and um, but I found a way mostly to turn that around to, you know, take action, take these little small steps. How do I break it down? And I could see that there, as I went through hospital, there were people around me where they couldn't do that to the same extent. Um, particularly I was in the, what they call the geriatric and rehab unit at the hospital for six weeks. Um, a lot of the, the other um, patients there were amputees, diabetic uh, issues leading to loss of limb and, and you know I think I could just see that um, how hard it was to um, move forward I could also feel a bit fortunate that you know maybe in my situation just generally in my life maybe uh, but certainly you know I still had all four limbs etc maybe gave me the hope that even though it's not great I can find a way to you know keep moving forward you know, mm. yeah. I don't. I don't know what it was, but you know, people would say things like, "Oh, the physios must love you." And so all those sort of things came together. Go well. There's something worth sharing here. And about 15 months after the um, the injury, everyone's going through COVID. Everyone's sort of in a disrupted um, space. Life's, you know, um, I just had that six months of this two to three weeks, days per week project that hadn't really worked out. And you're going. Um, you know, maybe it's worth me sharing some of the things I've gone through because other people are going through disruption at the moment. I did that and then it seemed to really resonate just this like short article I'd written and people go, this is great. You should write and speak more. And I'm going, really? I'm pretty average. It's not that great a story. There's much more miraculous stories out there. Um, and I guess I probably just felt like um, it might be something I'd put a lot of, I could put effort into, but it had a very narrow application or a very short-lived application. So, um, you know, it didn't warrant the energy to do that's probably how I felt for about six months but I just got you know had a few people that were quite good at I sometimes use it provoking provoking in a positive sense to you know you can do this this makes sense please do it um, and so yeah after a while I sort of got my head around the idea of writing a book you know how do I I guess a reward all the kindness and the great things that helped me um, in my own recovery um, but how do I share, I guess, things that work for me with the idea that other people might try for a, try a bit harder or a bit longer, get a bit of success, feel that positive feedback that you get that reinvigorates your effort when you when you try and get better results because ultimately that's good for them. It's good for the people that are the families around them. It's good for the the carers that are caring for them. So that were the, that were all the ideas, all of that stuff that came together to go give it a crack. Have you even written a book before? No. So, so I now. Did you write I, it? Did you get a ghost writer, or did you write it? <laughs> I um now I can go with the joke that I'm an accidental author. Uh, I got <laughs> catapulted back into contact with my creative side by uh, pile driving into a ditch. Mm, um, back uh, in contact. Were you creative back in when you were younger? Yeah, I had a very creative mother. She's an amazing artist and writer and pretty much anything creative she set her mind to, she could do. I never had artistic talent, well, not that's been discovered yet or anything like that. But I was, yeah, sort of handy enough at, you know, music and and writing. Um, I'm sure my English and English literature teachers at school would go, yes, he was a lazy bugger that he actually had a lot of talent. I wish he had done more. Um, so I guess I feel like I had some 
you know, I did like, you know, I did theatre, you know, I was Oliver as a kid, Oliver Twist, and um, I, I felt very connected with that sort of more artistic, creative side in a lot of ways. Um, but then you get into a corporate world and it's only really helping you at the fringes. It's not a central part of, of what I did from a corporate career perspective because I was more in sales and marketing and negotiation account management. Um, so, yeah, but I... I had gone through a few different periods where I'd written stuff on particularly LinkedIn that it seemed to be well people liked reading. So I had confidence that I could read uh, write to a degree. As I said, people then gave me the feedback saying that I could from that first article. And then, so I thought I'll give the book a go. And I guess my first thought was, you know, pretty cheap and cheerful, get it out of the system, help a few people, can't be successful. So don't waste money and time on it, Mark then um, that's not really my character. So it didn't take too many months after that before I found myself hiring a, a book coach. I really did that because I picked up a speaking gig and I'd talked to a speaking coach and the speaking coach said, you should really talk to this book coach. So I did the lat and they're all saying, you know, there's really something here. You should do this. So anyway, did all that. And then uh you're in the position where you're ready to publish after probably about three or four months of relatively solid work on the book and um I'm about to sort of self-publish as most authors do and um then my book coach says look there's this publisher in Melbourne that would like to talk to you about your book and we did that and she read my manuscript she said well it's good and it's not good enough you know how do you want to go forward with this and I, I thought that was fantastic feedback because she wouldn't be saying you know put more work into it um, if she didn't think there was something in the in the idea, so, um, and then she said, "Look, you know, we would we we're interested in going forward and doing something with it. If you are, we think it could be more than you see it can be. Um, but if you're going to do that, then you need to work with this particular editor because this is where, where we think the book's good, and this is where we don't think it's good, and we think she'll really help you get it to the next level." Um, so I guess I had two main thoughts when that happened. I thought, do they think that my writing's not quite up to... The, the, the story's good enough, but the writing's not, and they're going to put a ghostwriter. I'm not going to accept that. That's just not my thing. Um, and the other really important, I guess, fundamental for me was when I was looking for Inspiration Hospital, I looked for other people's ideas, people I knew that had done amazing things, their stories, and I tried to mimic it. If I can be half the person they were you know, well my wife had been through bowel cancer you know a few years before my injury and if um i'm not going to be the weak parent here i'm going to be able to um apply the same standards of resilience and amaze be amazing like she was through her journey and just um and just you know suck it up and get it get a go forward was really going through all those th ideas were going through my mind right the, the all these other inspirational stories and i thought i'm not i don't want them taken out of the book so my two fundamentals were i'm writing it I, I'm, I'm happy to be encouraged to to um down certain pathways if you think but i'm writing it in my you know in i guess the largely the shape i want to and with these breakout stories so if you're not going to attack those two things i think we might have a way forward so I have the first discussion with the editor and I'm a bit nervous about this as you might be. You've sent off your stuff to someone else to critique um, and you're a bit worried about it's going to come back. And it was just so comfortable. She's the most beautiful person, Brooke Lyons. It was just amazing. Uh, and really it was just restructuring a little bit the flow. And what they really wanted me to do was be more vulnerable through more of the book. I guess I'd tried, I, I was actually really uncomfortable about the book being all about me and, um, even though it's a memoir, it seems stupid, right? But I was uncomfortable about that. So I'd been, I'd shown at the very start of the book just how tough it was, but I didn't really want to go on about that for very long. I mean, it's a bit boring. Um, so but I guess I think the rest you of need it, I mean, to, though. I think exactly. you need well, to, yeah. You're in their camp. Yeah, thanks. You're in their camp. So at the very yeah. start, uh, and they just basically said, well, you've got to get people to read the whole book, Mark. <laughs> You know, so you need to draw them through the whole book by doing that more consistently through the whole book. And um, otherwise, what you'll find is they'll just read that starting bit. That's quite interesting. It's quite good. And then they might just read, you know, one chapter that interests them here, or one chapter that interests them there on, you know, different themes. Maybe they want to read about dealing with despair. They'll just go straight to that chapter or they want to learn about, um, you know, embracing love. Um, and they'll go straight to that chapter. They won't read the whole book unless you can 
lift up the, I guess, the vulnerability all the way through the book. So that was really, that was probably the most central thing they did. And, and Brooke was just amazing at, at doing that. She's probably, uh, yeah, she did uh, get many, many tears out of me, I guess, over the journey in terms of getting me to go back into things deeper than I'd written about them the first time or bring up stuff that I hadn't ever written about. Um, so, you know, as you write about it the first time and relive it, it's, you know, it's not, it's not particularly comfortable. So it was a really cathartic process too, because, you know, when people said, oh, you know, oh, the book would be really cathartic for you, I'm going, yeah, I'm all right, I've sort of got through it now. Um, and we can go into that a little bit, but I just felt like I was through that cathartic uh, nature, but actually the book was enormously cathartic. And it, I'll just finish that off quickly by saying, you know, and even when you write stuff and you have some tears and you might be reading back and and improving it and you're reliving it deeper and you've got tears, soft, like little soft tears on you, Again, you felt like I was through all that. And then the final day about uh, December 2020 when I'm um, 21, sorry, when I'm saying uh, print, you know, books good to publish, uh, send to printer. And I'm reading it for the very last time knowing that it's like, and I just go to some of my favourite stories and I can just feel this emotionally soft tears. Although I get a sort of part pride. It was part, I don't know, maybe it was part realisation it was all going to be public. Maybe it was part... I think it was just part appreciation for everything that had sort of welled up to that point in time to get me to the point I had. But it was it was actually one of the most magical experiences of my life, just almost sort of these soft little tears as I read the book for the final time whilst it was still just mine and just the publishers and just the um, editors' um, private thing and about to be something different. So that was, yeah, it was a really special moment, actually, even though it was, I just found it really strange at the time that it impacted me so centrally, just that last last skim read. And mm. I think probably I just, I'll just say one more thing, part nature. I read it looking for the mistake. And I read it thinking, oh, you will have stuffed something up somewhere. You've got something wrong. And and I kept reading and thinking, geez, they've written that better than I thought I had or I haven't there's no mistake that all lines up and then I'd actually mentally go oh you might have got that that linkage back wrong and I'd go back through the book and I read it and so it was part maybe it was even part relief of actually it's okay the book's okay it's interesting that you say that because I think as humans we naturally sort of go to well I know I do I naturally sort of go to the negative in terms of what's wrong or you know I have to actively try and be more, more positive in in life but it's interesting that even though you've gone through, and I know that you very sneakily touched on your, your wife's illness as well and, and glossed over that one, um, but you've gone through all this sort of trauma and sort of stuff that you've overcome. And then, I don't know, it's interesting though that even you come across as having such a positive mindset, you were still reading that book about mindset and how you overcame this obstacle with a negative viewpoint. And it's so... <laughs> self-doubt. Self-doubt is tough. It's a human, it's such a humanising moment. The self-doubt's tough, right? Oh, yeah, look, right, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm in the privileged position where I learned about three weeks ago that the book had won, you know, a, a, a Living Now Book Award in the in the US for the male memoir category. And but even then, like you're putting, it's awesome. But you put even that when you apply awards like that, you don't expect to win, and you still think you know because there's so many good things in the world, and it's so hard to stand out. And not that I'm trying to stand out per se i just want to raise awareness of the book enough that it gets in the hands of people that help because i've got i could go on for i could go on for too long about just some of the emails back of people in real hardship and how the books help them you know and 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 people help me and um that's a really special thing you know would i you know it's impossible right there's no going back in time and making the corner and not being injured but I'll probably leave a far better world for having got injured and having found the willpower to get up and choosing to share that than I would have had I gone along and continued to be, you know, yes, influential corporate, but really nothing, you know, other than helping a few of my former team members go on and do great careers themselves and do wonderful things themselves. I mean, you, you know, um, 
and and I guess the legacy through my children, which will still be amazing and and not um not hindered by this. But otherwise, what would I have left for the world? Um, you know, now as a result of unfortunately going through something really tough, at least I've got the help, the chance to help a few other people and do something, and that's a pretty amazing thing. So. Yeah, but anyway, sorry, back to the, the whole thing about the, the awards is just you still got to throw yourself out there for failure all the time. That's the world, right? And you have that self-doubt of it's going to, it's a fail, you know, why are you wasting, you know, $100 on entering a book award, Mark, you know? Um, yeah, self-doubt's very hard to control for anyone, I think, or for the vast majority of us. Mm. It still astounds me that that I you've overcome that self-doubt, but it still astounds me that someone with your uh, life journey still has that self-doubt. So I think it's a very human element of, of it. And it sounds like the book was also very much a legacy thing. Yeah. I'd probably reached the point where, um, and as part of why I'd gone out and consulted for myself, where mentally I wanted to do something around legacy anyway. Like I really wanted to get in the renewables power space and how do I help, Australia make the energy transition this is back in mm -hmm. 20 back in 2016 17 I started to try and win some jobs in that space because I could see that the energy market was going to be a nightmare going forward from a um difficulty at that point in time well yeah, the, yeah just the there was no real transition plan the grid's not up to sound in Australia there's lots of renewable the um you know just just the unreliable uh, generation nature of solar and Wind in particular meant that we were going to have more and more wild variations of supply and demand, which meant more price volatility. And, and I guess my um, background was around price, pricing. So I, so I could see all those trends and I wanted to get a job in that market because I wanted to stick up for renewables and make them successful. And and I just didn't, I failed to to make that job transition. So then I thought, oh, well, I just want to work for myself and, and, and create something. So, yeah. Why is solar and wind unreliable? I just from a, well obviously there's wind blowing and there's the uh, uh, sun shining so you know the I guess solar in particular just by day and our power generation particularly our manufacturing segments or you know, many areas is I guess more steady than that so you then need to put in place strategies that that deal with that are we going to put in place batteries at the same time are we going to have a a better grid so we have less transition or have less uh, transmission losses are we going to have pumped solar sorry pumped hydro which would be the ideal but no one wants to build a dam anywhere so you could you just got to have these like strategies together and unfortunately because uh, for a long period of time you know it's been too uncomfortable for politicians to actually make long-term decisions mm -hmm. um they they end up making no decisions and then you just got half a solution going in which is what we got so it's absolutely brilliant that we've got more and more you know solar solar going in and i guess that's what i wanted to to see happen and to continue happen but if they then have a situation where when they're producing the power prices are low so they're earning no money and when they're not producing the power prices spikes so or the fossil fuel providers are the only ones that can get money when the prices mm -hmm. are high because they're the only ones that are producing the reason the, that they're that the um the price is high is because the rest of the market can't produce and that they're the only winners in that short period that's in no one's interests and yet that was the structure or that is the structure that we've got in the marketplace. And, and why, why do we allow, and I understand it's a grid stability, but I think it's very much, I think it's stupid in terms of that we allow it, um, that you can have solar on your home, but yet remotely the grid can switch you onto the grid to manage the demand load. And so you don't have even know whether or not you're on solar or on the grid anyway. Uh, I think yeah. that if you're going to have solar, you should be allowed to have the batteries and completely be off grid. Um, well, it's certainly um, communities. And then now that they just sort of set up a, like a local housing pre precinct and they have batteries and they basically, you know, have little suburbs that are, I think, selling themselves on being almost effectively off the grid. So I think there are some situations where you can do, but um, yeah. I'm like, uh, I guess I don't, yeah. we're just not in control, right? And then the day, you know, um, of where that power's coming from and, and how, we're, unless you've got your own battery and go cut yourself off from the grid, which you can't entirely do. I'm not self. Did, 
I don't like to ever take Elon Musk up on the offer to build in a hundred days the yeah solar and battery. They did take yeah, him up on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I guess mine. And again, I've stopped following the renewables and the the power market in the same way as I did then. And I never actually worked in it, so there'll be people out there that might know much more about it than me that are saying he doesn't know yeah. what he's talking about. But yeah, no, they definitely built the battery, and it's been a huge success just in terms of that buffer. So far, greater expect. Um, I guess, uh, success that I actually appreciated because I think in, when it, they were putting it in, I'm just thinking, well, it's just such a, even though it was, you know, it was touted as such a big battery, it was actually so small relative to South Australia's uh, demand. But of course, when you're dealing with really dynamic price environments, very small amounts of incremental demand or, or shortfall of supply are the ones that drive those price spikes to the greatest extremes. So even a small battery that could soften those extremes of, of um, I guess, demand or supply imbalance and therefore price volatility were extremely mm -hmm. valuable. So I think it's been a massive, without you know having read reviews on it or anything, my view would be it's been a massively successful um, uh, decision. Yeah. But I did say my very limited knowledge of it, I did read that he was saying that they could solely just do all of Adelaide power supply from the battery and from solar sounds like if they put in a small battery they didn't take him up on that offer do you know why uh no i don't know don't, don't know the oh, Mark, i wanted to get no, some inside on. goss no, from sorry. you come on no i don't know enough about power sorry i was like coal um for quite a few I years know, but then you wanted to do the renewables yeah well and i guess because also i worked in aluminium for a while and i actually really loved the aluminium smelting business when i sort of was selling the products there i could see how valuable they were um and it was just yeah it was a really interesting job uh doing australia new zealand sales manager and then on to acting gm role for um the aluminium business and um, yeah, I just think aluminium is a fantastic commodity, and of course, it's very power hungry. So, uh, so I guess I've got some cursory power knowledge, but not really, not really detail. But yeah, I just had yeah. <laughs> anyway, to come back, it was all about legacy. How do I leave a legacy? And I've ended up being in the you know being able to write a book, and and that's a pretty amazing thing. You're also doing the speaking uh, tour as well, the corporate speaking geeks. Well, speaking tour makes it sound a bit grand grandiose, and I do get friends saying when the book I tour. I did see the eyes go wide. When when the when the uh, book tour ends, I get that comment from friends all the time. You go, got any idea how hard it is to promote a book? And it's not really a tour. Um, yeah, no. Look, um, I'm in the early days. Of, uh, my corporate uh, speaking career, I suppose, I get a couple of gigs a month at the moment. I'd like to build that up, um, and it's just a great opportunity to try and get people to think a bit differently and uh, take on some some of my lived experience in a way that's. Uh, provide some inspiration for them or just thought change. And yeah, it's a great privilege actually. So I was very scared about that to start with. I have to say, again, your own self-doubt, that's self-expectation, even though I, uh, you know, people would, I guess, always associate me as being someone who is comfortable in conversation and, and yeah, spoke as a leader. Um, I guess the very first time I, 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 I did a public speech, it was just for the, some kids at my, children's school so the last thing I wanted to do was my boys school I've got two boys one girl and um at the boys school and I was just a bit worried you know it, what would happen if I didn't speak well with the you know the they the boys competent some way around the schoolyard that your dad was crap at speaking or something so I guess you know you put that sort of pressure on yourself of you know I really want to engage these what were year 10 to 12 uh AFL um the AFL first squad and um, yeah, so I felt pretty uncomfortable. I did it. It was the first time I'd publicly, you know, spoken about just how scary it was, you know, trying to stand up and um, stand up for the first time, just stand up, you know, just, just even to be able to stand up post the operation was hugely scary and difficult and my legs were shaking and a uh, really awful experience. So, you know, just to talk through those things publicly in front of people that you, you know, only knew a couple of was yeah, a bit daunting. Um but then I guess over time I started to you know, try practice a bit more. And you, I guess the very first time I did a 45 minute long keynote, I don't use any slides, just talking through all the, you know, the lessons from my journey and, and some other stories I like to share. Um, you know, I was really worried about, am I going to be able to remember 45 minutes in the order that I, I wanted to with the right lines, particularly when you're trying to interconnect different stories in a seamless way, is that going to hang together? So um 
I put a fair bit of pressure on myself to pull that off the first few times. And, um, you know, I think you had a great bit of advice just before I went into the first one, which was your, they're your stories, you know them. Uh, just have fun with it. Don't, you know, don't try and be perfect. Um, just you know, embrace the moment and have, have fun. And that was a great bit of uh, feedback from another guy that had a pretty nasty injury 20 odd years ago that it sort of, I didn't know, but I just, um, a friend had put me in contact with him just a few days by chance uh, before that first speaking gig and he just gave me that advice and that really helped so uh yeah um it's a it's a again it's a great privilege right to uh, be able to stand up even, even though it's, it's still at times a little bit daunting um you know you still go well it's a great privilege to be able to stand up in front of people and share and 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 quite often they you know walking away taking away something really valuable from whatever you've said how do people get in contact with you if they want you to come and speak at their uh, business or sporting event or whatever? Yeah, it's so the best way is to go to markberridge.com.au um, and you just go to or email me at connect at markberridge.com.au or go to that website and, and find me there. Uh, you can track me down through LinkedIn, anyone that does that, um, or Mark Berridge author on Insta, all of those things sort of end up you know, eventually getting the right way. But yeah, it's, um, it's you know, it's a, it's a great, great privilege to, you know, be able to be, share things like that. How do people get hold of this, the book, Fraction Stronger? Uh, the book's in most bookstores, Amazon, Booktopia Online. Again, markberries.com.au, you get lovely long, what people call love letters when you buy from me because I can't help myself but try and work out why you've uh, bought the book and, and what it might be valuable for you and see if I can't write a bit of an encouraging note at the front. Um, and, yeah, Dimmicks and um, most bookstores around Australia, my publisher, Major Street Publishing, um, so lots of options. It gets released in the US 1st of September, so that's exciting as well. Exciting, yeah. Mm. Well, I'll link everything in the show notes. Thanks, Mark. Pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much, Fiona. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 